You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Hey folks, you don't have to have some Frenchie named Jean-Jean Terrafique. Step on your hand as he blows past you on some belay to know that our sport is growing more popular and therefore more crowded every passing moment. And the sheer numbers are starting to have a real impact on the climbing areas that we cherish. Black Diamond and the Access Fund recognize this, and they want you to recognize that it's up to us to work together to minimize the degradation of the once wild and free climbing experience. They've come up with a thing called the Pact, a list of 10, I don't want to call them rules because climbers don't like rules, so we'll just call them guidelines. It's all pretty basic stuff about how to act when you're at the cliff. Now before you look at this list, you're probably going to think to yourself, well, I'm a really responsible user. I don't cause any problems. And yet, I think you'll find a few of them there that you've probably broken, even in the last couple weeks. I mean, what if you are the pain in the ass that everyone else is rolling their eyes at? Would you know? Probably not. So you better go have a look at the pact. So go to blackdiamondequipment.com and look for the Black Diamond Rock Project, or go to accessfund.org and click on the pact for more information. That's the pact. From Black Diamond and the Axis Fund. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing it at? Are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, the big place. That's, it out. That's a big nice. place. You sold so it out. I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather, bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes. And don't forget, you can go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Normo at checkout to get a discount on great coffee. And. You can go to pureholds.com and enter Enormo to get a discount on great Colorado-made climbing holds. Both the coffee and the holds will give you the power to crush your enemies and see them driven before you. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Cast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is... February 5th, 2015, about 9 o'clock Mountain Standard Time. And this is episode 74, a conversation with Access Fund Executive Director Brady Robinson. Big news in the Normacast world. As some of you who follow the Facebook page know, sometime in the last week, some moment, I didn't have an alarm set or anything else. Uh, we passed 1 million total downloads for the project. It took me three years. To hit the million mark, but when I started this thing, I sure as hell wouldn't have thought that would ever happen. So that's pretty cool. I mean, I know it takes serial like five seconds to do that, but I'm still pretty proud of it. Thanks a lot, you guys, for downloading the show, for spreading the word. Please continue to do that because I don't know who knows where this thing can go. I mean, the Dawn Wall just happened. My stash shot up just thanks to that. That alone brought me a bunch of business. More on that in a minute. Other news is that um, I'm working on showing up at the Red Rock Rendezvous this year again. Some of you were there. 
Some of you saw the show from the stage last year, the one that never came out because I blew it. I won't blow it this year. I can almost promise that, you know? Depends on a few things. I can't say 100% because nothing is sure in this world, but I'm going to do my best to not blow it this time. So don't know who the guests are. Just figured this out today, actually. And uh, the Red Rock Rendezvous is March 27th to the 29th out in Red Rocks or Red Rock. I think it's Red Rock on the sign, but I always call it Red Rocks. You'll have to ask a local about that. I'll have more information about what I'm doing in the uh, coming shows between now and then. But if you want more information, just Google it. You know how to do that. Red Rock Rendezvous. So a little more about the million download mark and the uh, new listeners and the Dawnwall bump. My stats show that I got a bunch of new folks coming onto the show this month. I can only imagine it's because everybody's interest in climbing has brought them into the fold here at the Normacast. I want to welcome all the new people. December actually was pretty big too, so I don't know what's going on. But I'm glad to have everybody on board. Um, but I also want to, of course, thank the longtime listeners. That's who brought the million downloads. You guys have been here from the beginning. But if you have just joined the show, keep in mind that I do indeed have sponsors, but the uh, main financial support for the show comes from the donations from listeners. Somebody on the Facebook page pointed out that if I had a dollar an episode, I'd be a millionaire, which would be awesome. Although I'm not asking for that. I would throw a huge fucking party, though, invite everybody be amazing. I think I'd add the Violent Femmes play. Are they still a band? Whatever. I'd get them back together. But I'm not looking for a million bucks. What does work is a lot of people giving a little bit, because that does start to add up. Hell, a Nicholas show would be 50 grand. That's how that works. Pretty powerful. So if you think back and uh, have gotten a bunch of entertainment from this thing, listened to a bunch of shows, passed the time, made the miles go by, got through the workday, kept your stoke for climbing up, consider donating something to the Enorma Cast. Help keep me psyched. Help keep the show going. There are some expenses involved with this thing. Go to EnormaCast.com, click on the donate button, buy me a drink, buy me a Sprinter van, but consider helping out the show. You can also click on the help out tab. There's a donate button in there, but there's also a bunch of other things that you can do to help out the show. And also don't forget to support our sponsors and let them know that you appreciate their support for the EnormaCast. So hopefully all the new folks coming on are going to stick around. I imagine there'll be something of a hangover like I had when I posted the Alex Honnold show right in the middle of the 60 Minutes hoopla a couple years ago. Had a big spike and then it kind of leveled back off to the uh, the usual suspects, the folks listening every, every month. Uh, so we'll see what happens. But again, welcome aboard. Thanks for checking it out. All right, on to the interview with Brady Robinson. We both endeavored not to make this sound like some sort of infomercial for the access fund. Hopefully we succeeded, but I think it turned into a good balanced look at what the access fund does for us. So sit back and enjoy a conversation with executive director of the access fund, Brady Robinson. Look folks, we all know that ice climbing is a miserable, cold endeavor punctuated by small spikes of joy, mostly when it's over. But if you're planning on heading to the famous ice park in Uray, Colorado, to climb out your self-loathing, why not up the joy ratio by staying in the Wiesbaden Hotel and Spa? Imagine, after your third round of screaming barfies, you can retire to their vapor cave and soaking pool for a, quote, strange, dark, steamy underworld soaking experience. 
The Wiesbaden is affordable luxury in Ure. In fact, if you climb in Ure and don't stay there, you are totally blowing it. Discounts all winter. Go to wiesbadenhotsprings.com for more information. Once again, that's wiesbadenhotsprings.com. It's really the only way you'll find me nice climbing. Whatever. Yeah, but how many times have I heard you say, oh, we'll edit this out for sure, for sure. And it's in there. So, guess what? I don't totally trust you. But, okay, I'll take it. You know, take your word for it. <laughs> this is true. Um, All right. If I do say, oh, we'll edit that out later, that's a pretty good signal it's going to stay in. So, <laughs> Do you have like a nonverbal sign that the guest is talking to much or too long about no. something? It's never a problem, man. It really isn't. Go on. I mean, the main complaint I've ever gotten is I talk too much. I should let the guests talk. You mm-hmm. people bug me about that. So. Really? Yeah. No, it's true. Like, um, I'm, I'm conscious of it now. So um, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Uh, I'm back at the Roadway Inn, people. I, I took a year off from the Roadway Inn uh, last summer because they were booked, but I'm back. I'm still working on that coupon. They should be giving me a commercial for this. Or they should be giving me uh, some money for this. But I'm back at the Roadway Inn for OR, Winter OR 2015. And my guest, my first guest of OR, so I'm I'm still like super amped up. I'm I'm not worn out, um, is Brady Robinson from the Access Fund. How's it going, Brady? It's going great. Welcome to room 322. Yeah. (laughs) This is a pretty nice studio, actually. A little... Yeah, it's good. It's actually nice Bro. because we're on the top floor, so there won't be a chance of someone vacuuming above me like often happens at these shows. So that's pretty nice. Plus, it's the afternoon, so Maria won't be interrupting us um, trying to get me towels like with Russ last summer. Anyway, glad to have you here, Brady. I'm honored to be here. And uh, I'm excited because Brady was a guy who got in touch with me. And that doesn't happen very often that someone gets in touch with me and says, Hey, I really like your show and I'd be psyched to come on. And if anyone out there is listening who, who maybe wants to come on the show, it's perfectly fine just to ask me. Well, see, actually my memory of it is that you and I were buzzed upstairs at the Lander bar. Oh. And we had a discussion about it then. And then I kind of repinged you. That's what happened. You're right. <laughs> but that does not change the fact that I'm, Really happy and eager to be on your show because your show has been great. I'm a big fan. Awesome. The the uh, the Lander Bar actually is a place I've made a lot of connections with people. So I've gotten a soft a soft yes from Miss Sasha D, although she you know probably that's, didn't really know what she was saying that's yes the only to. Kind of yes you're gonna get yeah. from Sasha D maybe the, the soft <laughs> yes. But anyway, Sasha, if you're listening, I'm sure you are. I'm sure she hangs on these things. You did say yes. So we'll get back to you after we're done with Brady. Brady, how long have you been with the Access Fund? Over seven years, seven and a half years. Let's start with that. I mean, you have been there for seven years. You're actually, I think, kind of one of the more public faces of that organization. Probably I mean, that's, part of, the, that's part of the job. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I, I mean, I know a lot of other names of folks that work there, and uh, I've had conversations, but it seems like you're sort of one of the more public personas um, in terms of, of what you do for those guys. So how did that all come about? I mean, when did you said seven years ago? Yeah, well, so I worked at I worked at Outward Bound, a little bit at Knowles, but mostly Outward Bound for like 13 years, guided itinerant climber for a while. And, um, where job, were you at that time? Um, I lived in South America for a while, ran a mountaineering program down there for in, in Chile and Argentina. Oh, cool. For Outward Bound and developed some programming down there. It was awesome. And then 
uh, fell in love with my wife to be and kind of needed to be located in the Southeast. Her dad was sick at the time and we needed to be there. And then this job opportunity with Outward Bound came up. So I was operations director at North Carolina Outward Bound for four and a half years. And, um, it was kind of time to move on and the job came open and it, you know, we, I was psyched to move West. I love climbing in the Southeast. I know you're kind of a recent convert to Eastern climbing. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. The rock, you know, the thing that Colorado climbers don't realize is that the rock is actually in terms of cragging, it's better in the Southeast. The weather isn't as consistent, but I think the cragging's better. I'll just go on the record and say that. Well, I, I, I mean, I can't dispute that, like the cragging thing. and that I mean, steep sandstone? Yeah, Come totally. on, right? Well, and that's, I think, you know, when I went to West Virginia and everybody was grilling me, like, what do you think? It's awesome. It's awesome. And it totally is awesome. And particularly, I mean, that's the feature is the rock is so good. Yeah. And, the, and that was my only thing. And not I wasn't like dissing or comparing and trying to make the West sound better. But I was basically like, yeah, but I would miss having the big stuff around the climb. Yeah, that's and that's fair. really it. Totally so fair. the cragging rules... Colorado's got the big stuff. Although yeah, you should go climb on Whitesides. Have you ever heard of Whitesides? <laughs> yeah, of course, okay. man. I'm All a little right. scared of the place, but yeah. Yeah, it'll stick with you. Anyway, back to our story. Um, so I was there for a long time, and I wanted to make a change. And so I was. it was a super busy season. I applied to be the executive director of the Access Fund. Steve Matus is moving on at that time. And I didn't hear anything back. Like two weeks, nothing. Dead dead air. So what does that mean? Wah, wah. I didn't make it. Right. Um, so between courses I was managing, I wrote a letter to the then president and said, Hey, like, uh, I'm taking your lack of communication as an indication that maybe I'm not on the short list. Here's why I think I deserve a look. This is probably what you're concerned about. Here are the kind of extenuating circumstances and, uh, just give me a time and a place. I'll pay all my travel expenses. I just want one hour of your time. Just give me, give me a look. And, um, and it worked. It worked. So I got the job. I mean, there's obviously more detail there, but well, so well, what did your pitch sound like? Well, it was basically like, you know, I'm okay. So at that time I'm, uh, I'm a young, a fairly young guy with the, the never been an executive director before rocking the ponytail, you know? And, um, <laughs> basic, I mean, to the outsider, I mean, Outward Bound is an amazing organization, but you know, to the outsider, I'm like a guy that takes children camping, you know, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. is he going to run the, or <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> a little gonna... different. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, um, so my pitch was basically like, it's not going to cost you anything more than an hour of your time. Just give me a look. I'm not telling you I'm the best. I'm just, you know, give me a look. So anyway, I flew out and I'll never forget it. I was, um, <clears throat> interviews in these offices and the, the guy who had interviewed before me, like I was wearing the super cheap, like sport coat, like cheesy, you know? And uh, he looked like he came right out of a J. Crew catalog. Right, scared the shit out of me. Yeah, you were you were wearing the roadway in version of a jacket. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> that was me. Anyway, it all worked out, and um, and I feel really lucky to have gotten that opportunity, and it's it's gone really well. Um, it's gone well for me, and the organization's grown a lot, and yeah, it's been a good run. Well, tell me a little bit about your climbing. You grew up uh, in the east. No, I grew up in Minnesota, rural Minnesota. Oh. Okay, like on the flat part? There's pretty much only a flat part, but There's yeah. like bumps up on the <laughs> right up on the bumps. north at the There's top of it. There's a few bumps. The glaciers weren't kind to us. Right, right. Yeah. But uh, I grew up in South Central, and um, my first climbing was at Blue Mountain State Park. A buddy of mine and I, we bought basic and advanced rock craft sure. by Royal Robbins. Uh-huh. 
um, we started rappelling out of trees. First time I ever rappelled out of a tree, I took the end of the rope, fed it through the figure eight device. The whole concept of putting a bite around. Oh, okay. Foreign. Like, we, we didn't know anything. Oh, right, right. So you, like, ran it all the way through instead of just flipping then, it over And then the tied it back to the tree. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we started top ripping at this place called Blue Mounds, which is in the southwest. It got me and this guy uh, named Mike Feenan, a good buddy of mine, and we just taught ourselves how to climb. We survived that process. That was in the 80s. Isn't this an awesome theme? I mean, like, so many people that come on here from places like Texas and the Midwest, it's like this this survival thing like how many bones or didn't get broken that probably should have or whatever yeah right. but if you can if you live through that like thoroughly experiential process it's a great way to learn like we, we went to rei we bought these ropes we couldn't afford cams and we couldn't even afford a full rack of nuts and hexes and so the guy at rei said well listen you just buy every other size and you can rotate them and then you have two sizes oh, in one and so we started leading on that we never even seen anybody lead we're leading and and we, we survived it, and it was awesome. We, we rigged up um, lawn chairs so we could have a portal edge experience. Yeah, sure. So we slept on the wall. I know people have, yeah. back in the day did that on the captain. Well, right. I mean, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was anyway. Isn't so that where, like, are, a Gurmichi ledge came from? Was somebody lugging a freaking, uh, like, lounge chair up there or I'm, something? I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, anything other than a single-point hammock, right? Sure. So... Yeah, so I learned that way. And um, what was the impetus? <clears throat> I just loved climbing trees. It was something innate. Mm -hmm. I loved climbing things. I saw a TV show with my buddy about um, Kurt Albert and Wolfgang Gulich. You know, like these guys and these crazy German dudes and tights, free solo and stuff, mm -hmm. and doing one finger pull ups, and just that just seemed rad. And so. It just was something I felt like I needed to do. And then I went to college in St. Paul, Minnesota, worked for uh, Nicros and Vertical Endeavors eventually. But I got a job at a camp in the Poconos of Pennsylvania as a rock climbing instructor. Mm -hmm. I had almost no experience. And uh, the only reason I got the job is because I checked the box near model rocketry. They needed a model rocketry instructor. Mm -hmm. So I show up and that went away. And I ended up like teaching rock climbing without knowing it's anything still about got it. The word rock in it, right? Yeah. Yeah. The same thing. Yeah. Anyway, well, whatever random, random, they, they picked you because you knew how to set up a figure eight by then. Yeah. Bye. The theme here is that my a completely <laughs> accidental career in life, but anyway, that's awesome. That, I mean, that speaks, I think well of your personality, sir. That like, worked out. I'm just going to make this happen and, and, uh, not let go. Right. Yeah. So I met a guy out there by the name of Roland Rincon. He still lives in Boulder. He was the first real climber I, I met. He he took me in the Adirondacks. I climbed uh, Drop Flyer Die, this 5.11 minus. I threw up at the anchor. Like, you know. Literally. Literally threw oh, up in my mouth oh. at the anchor. And Roland's like, wow, I was going to I was thinking we were going to go down. But after that, I think we need to do the next pitch. <laughs> and um, and so he took me climbing the gunks. He just really took me under his, under his wings, you know. And so then... Um, in college, I met this guy by the name of Jimmy Chin. So we grew up 12 miles away from each other in rural Minnesota. He was going to Carlton. I was going to McAllister. We ran into each other at the gym. And then after we graduated, we ran into each other in Joshua Tree. And we just started hanging out and climbing and free soul and easy stuff and just getting so amped up. And um, then we ended up going to the valley together and did, did Half Dome. And then we did the nose in a day. And then we're like, all right. And then we did like one of the Mendel Coulars and they were like, we're ready for the Karakoram. I mean, clearly. Right. Uh, right and so, on. yeah. And so Jimmy, who, I mean, obviously he's, um, famous guy, great guy. And you know, 
incredibly talented and also the kind of person that people just like to be around, which is a part of the secret of why he's been so successful. Right. Certainly not the only thing, but part yeah, of it probably makes a hell of a wingman too. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, he, um, he like staked out in Galen Rowell's office for like a week. He had heard from Peter Croft at the trade show that there was this killer valley called the Sharakusa Valley in Pakistan. And um, he's like, you need to go to Galen, you know, like go to the Oracle. You will get the answer. And so Jimmy goes to Galen Rowell's office, hangs out there every day for a week, Friday afternoon. It's a true story. Galen's like, all right, all right, kid, fine. You know, and brings him in, gives him a slideshow with the Sharakusa, gives him one slide of Fatih Brock and Parhat Brock, these two killer towers. And um, Jimmy put together a trip around that theme. We, you know, with the two of us put together the trip, Jimmy was the the driving force here. And then um, a guy by the name of Evan Howell and the Workman Brothers came along. And in 99, these five guys who didn't know what the hell they were doing went into the Sharakusa with a bunch of stuff and barely enough money. We left with like 100 rupees. We, If we couldn't have paid all those porters, it would have been really bad. Like yeah, we, right. It was... It was so anxiety-inducing. That whole thing was so stressful, but it was amazing. We, we climbed some really cool routes, and we went back to Pakistan together a few years after that. And at the same time, I did some Patagonia trips with some guys. And it, you know, Jimmy was my main climbing partner for that whole time. And so you were. this is when you were uh, Outward Bound instructors? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that the was, whole Outward Bound right. thing had happened right when we, when we ran into each other in Joshua Tree. I was like a beginning Outward Bound instructor. And mm-hmm. so... I just basically, I would, I was working in South America for seven months a year. I'd do a trip to Pakistan. I'd do a trip to Patagonia. I'd work for Outward Bound. I did it three years in a row, Patagonia, Pakistan. And then 9-11 happened. We were going to, the last trip we did, it was me and Conrad, Anchor, and Jimmy Chin. We tried K-7. We made a valiant attempt. We got totally bouted. And we were planning to go back. And then September 11th happened. And it just didn't seem prudent to mm-hmm. go over there. I mean, I am not. I try not to be xenophobic. I still think Pakistan's a wonderful place, and I would go back. You know, some occasionally some bad things have happened there. The the mountain people are amazing, and just, you know, once you get in the mountains, you're good, basically. Right. Um, with one notable exception, in the last few years. But right. anyway, um, we decided to take give it a rest, and then my life kind of took a different a different uh, a different tack. And the last trip that Jimmy and I did together was in 2002. We went to the Waddington Range and. Uh, Jimmy was there to shoot Conrad, Anchor, and Peter Croft. And I was like the guy who held, holds Jimmy's rope mm-hmm. so that he can take the pictures. Sure. And it was actually kind of hard because, um, you know, I was with two famous guys and a guy that was clearly going to be famous. And then it was like me. And, um, it, you know, <laughs> I'm not, I, seriously, right? You know, and I was a, I mean, I was a good enough climber. Right. right. Um, if I was going to make it as like a pro or semi pro or whatever, it was going to require a lot of hustling and writing and taking pictures of my part, sure. which is cool, right? Yeah. But it was going to be a lot of work, and um, and we got you know we got some of our trips paid for, but and, and so I had this kind of a crisis in the tents there beneath combatant and Wadi in the Waddington range, just like you know, wh- who am I? Mm-hmm. And wh- and I'm not these you know I, this isn't this isn't my path, and do I want it to be my path? Is it not? And so, um. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, um, it was hard, but you, you know, I just figured out that that wasn't what I wanted. wasn't for me. It wasn't, whether it's not, it's available to you. What I just, it was like, okay, this is not the way I'm going like pro climber or, you know, quasi semi pro, whatever, semi rad, whatever, like, sure. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to keep climbing, but this is not going to be the thing that I do. 
How old were you at the time? I was early 30s. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so it's time to kind of figure that out, I guess, too. Yeah, I mean, as you well know. Yeah. Some of us figure oh, no, some you're, of you're stuff speaking, out earlier or later. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you're, you're sort of, I mean, I, I've had those same moments in my quote-unquote climbing career where it's like, yeah, could I take this path? Am I sort of, like you just said it perfectly, like I'm good enough that with a lot of hustling, I could be seen as better than I am in a way, Yeah, you know, or associating myself with, with certain people would probably yeah. help me a lot, but I'm no like Jimmy Chin. I'm no someone that everybody realizes, Hey, this guy yeah. is the guy. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's people who just have the raw talent mm-hmm. and then, yeah, I mean, what, what, what the, sure. what, well, yeah, he, and, and I mean, he's a great climber and He's just got the incredible artistic eye. I mean, yeah. so it's a funny anecdote. So we were training for one of our trips. Um, I bought a camera, and on the way up, um, it was an old Nikon manual. We're talking about, I, I, I'm kind of a geek, you know, so I'm like F-stop, depth of field, shutter speed, stuff, you know, whatever. All the stuff that you kind of need to know, but isn't ultimately the most important thing about photography. We get to the top. We're taking some shots. We want to submit some shots to Mountain Hardware. He takes two pictures on my camera. I, I took like four rolls. <laughs> I submit them. And Mountain Harbor was like, oh, my God, this is an amazing shot. Of course, it was one of the two that Jimmy took. And um, we sold it. And, like, we split the money. Like, you son of a bitch. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And he's just got that eye, right? I mean, he's an artist. And uh, I'm more of an engineer. Right. And um, it was great, you know. It was a – we had a great partnership. And and he he crashed to my floor here at the trade show uh, last night. And we talked. I think we're going to do something in the Valley together again. And we haven't climbed together for a long time. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's uh, a lot of people complain about these, the trade show that have to come here and do all this business, but I always have a good time here and, and stuff like that happens, oh, like yeah. reconnecting with people. Oh, yeah. This is like a family reunion for it climbers, is. you know? It is. Yeah. And it's much bigger than climbing. The climbing section actually is really tiny. So, I mean, I just run into people and re-up and make plans and I think yeah, it's a blast. it's nice. It's, it's nice and it can seem elitist from the outside and some people complain about it. I mean, it's tiring. You're walking around doing mm-hmm, stuff, but mm-hmm. no, I, I, I actually, I've, it's, I've, I, I love it more and more over time because it feels sort of like the tribe. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, so let's fast forward then to the, to the, uh, the access fund thing. So what is your kind of role at the access? Well, fund? so executive director, you know, some, in some organizations it's called CEO. It's basically, right. yeah, I answer to the board. So there's a board of directors whose job it is to set the strategic direction of the organization and then, you know, hire, manage and, or fire the executive director, basically okay. is some, one of their most important functions. Right. And so um, but I run the organization, mm-hmm. so like I'm the executive. That and, and what does that mean? Well, you know, at the Axis Fund, we've got a really strong board. We're also fairly staff driven and kind of nimble, so there's not a whole lot of bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. You know, m- part of my job is to make sure that we've got great staff on board, that we've got real clarity. And as an organization, we do. I mean, Outward Bound, I love it, but at that time period, at least at Outward Bound. We were trying to save the world every which way and how, you know, because um, that that kind of educational philosophy is so many different ways to apply it and so we were just chasing after all these awesome ideas and and being idealistic and and is great but at the axis and, and, and we are idealistic and we're super focused we keep climbing areas open and conserved in the united states that's what we do right and if we don't if, if something we're doing doesn't do that or doesn't support it in some way it's ancillary it's not central to what we're doing and so that clarity is one of the things that really attracted me about the job and so I try to, you know, we, we have to have an environment in which people feel like they can be creative 
in which they feel like, you know, there's resources to do things. And also we need to be completely laser focused. That's what we're about. Mm -hmm. And we're going to, you know, the resources we have are focused on those things and not focused on other stuff. And so that's one of my jobs, just, you know, manage the programs, make sure they're focused on the mission, keep the board engaged, hire, manage the staff, make sure the environment is one where people can flourish um, and raise money. Right. And raise money. Um, I'm sometimes, you know, there's certain organizations where the ED is more the fundraiser in chief, chief than less, you know, I'm, I'm operations, uh, management somewhat le- leadership, but there's also a big fundraising component too. Cause, um, you know, we, that we're not some, like some nonprofits, like say, again, outward bound, they have a product that people might buy like a course and our product is access. Mm-hmm. Our product is keeping the places that we love open to us and conserve, meaning not totally trash. So future generations can enjoy it too. And that's a great product, but you know, it's not like NPR where we can just take a week off and say, Hey, you know, that program usually you listen to where we're only going to give you 25% of it today. Cause the rest of the time we're going to sit here and talk at each other about how you need to give us money. Right. You know, I always, sometimes I fantasize about, wouldn't it be cool if we could do that at the cliff and people show up to climb? Right. Like, oh, fuck. You know, it's fundraising week. Damn it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Let's go to the gym. Screw this place. <laughs> And we'll come back a week later. Hey, guys, where are you going? <laughs> yeah. No, no, seriously. Yeah, turn off NPR, turn on the podcast. Time to listen to the Enormacast. Damn it. Like, I want to listen. So, but we can't do that, you know? Our product That'd is... That would be horrible. <laughs> I know. I actually think... I mean, I actually kind of think like a, a mockumentary where we there's like speakers embedded in the crag. Right? Yeah, totally. And like, we, we pretend to be the fundraising week. Whatever. It's... No, that would be bad news. Don't do that. No, 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 no. But so we don't have a, our our product is important, but it's also the kind of thing that it just seems, you know, to to the, uh, it seems like it's always going to be there. Like rocks are immutable, whatever the rocks, like we'll go Mm -hmm. visit the rocks, we'll climb, Mm -hmm. we'll come home, like whatever. And so, um, it's, we, we depend on people to give us money, corporations and uh, largely individuals like 70% is, is one person, 70% of our budget is one person saying, I want to. I want money to go to the access fund. They, maybe they have a family foundation. Maybe there's somebody who scraped together 35 bucks and mm-hmm. are committed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so part of, part of my job is to make sure that we are telling the stories of our work in a way that is authentic and, um, and resonates with people. Like we, you know, occasionally we'll do this, but I don't like fear-based stuff like dun, dun, right. El Cap's going to close unless you give us 50 bucks. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, it, it, segue. Um, so we, we, we try to, um, keep it positive, but like segue, you know, so El Cap, um, it's wilderness area. So that, that's on everybody's mind right now. Right. You know, I don't know when this is going to air exactly, but uh, presumably people still oh, remember. we'll still be talking <laughs> yeah, about, still about the Don the Wall. Wall. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Tommy, former Access Fund board member, and Kevin Jargison. I mean, it's super inspiring what they did. And um, most people may not realize that um, El Cap is a wilderness area. Right. Like above a certain altitude. 95%, just a little under 95% of the entire uh, Yosemite National Park is federally designated wilderness managed by the Park Service. Um, once you get a pitch or two up off the deck... You're in a wilderness area. What does that mean? Well, the, you know, the Wilderness Act of 1964 um, puts all these parameters and restrictions um, and, and management kind of f- uh, framework around that. And one of the things is thou shalt not use a motor to do anything. Right. And so you're hand drilling. Even the, the ability to place a bolt at all in wilderness was, was really 
an open question until just a little over a year ago. Right. I mean, realistically, I don't know that the Park Service, it would have been really hard for them to say, you know, no bolts on El Cap, we're going to remove them all. I think there would have been a lot of public outcry, but it was unclear. There was no clarity at the national level, and we've been working on this issue for over two decades. Mm-hmm. And a little over a year ago, something called Director's Order 41. Now, this is kind of the boring side of our work. We, we do a lot of policy work. It's wonky. But the director of the Park Service, John Jarvis, signed this order, which governs a lot of things about how wilderness will be managed. And there's mm-hmm. one whole section on climbing. And it said climbing is a legitimate use of wilderness. And it acknowledges that you have to have some provision for the occasional use of fixed anchors in wilderness for right. climbing to occur. Right. And then it, it then it spelled out some of the you know of course the devil's in the details it spelled out some of the ways that that may or may not happen, but we got it at the top. Right. The director said this is appropriate, and now we have that framework. And now one the tricky thing is going to be helping all the parks all around the country implement that. Okay. But <clears throat> all that is to say, the bolts that Tommy and Kevin put in on El Capitan, their ability to do that. We can claim some credit for that, something we've been working on for 20 years. And and in the middle, some people who've been around for a while might remember uh, in the mid-90s, there was something, there was a big scare. The Forest Service issued a temporary Mm -hmm. ban on fixed anchors in wilderness, and it looked like everything was going to go that way. And if it had, the face of American climbing would look really different right now. Yeah, well, some people are probably like, it would be better. But the, the, I mean, the bolt thing has got to be one of these things that, I think is an issue for you guys like pretty frequently, isn't it? Yeah. Just th- this idea that climbers have this sort of, and it, when you really think about it, it is kind of a strange thing that we can go into these places and put this thing in the rock and leave it there, you know, in a wilderness area or any, anywhere else. So, and I, I, I didn't realize that it was still such a, on the fence kind of thing until last year. Cause you guys issued when that happened, when you were just talking about, I mean, there was notices like, Hey, look, this is what just happened. Yeah. We finally sort of to yeah. a certain extent settled this thing. Um, but I in mean, the park service, yeah. With the yeah. park service, so. at the federal level, <laughs> I have to put some caveats on there, but yeah, 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 it's fair. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's never totally settled, but no. it's pretty hard to, I mean, it's definitely hard to wrap your head around to the point where like with all this Don wall reporting and whatnot, mm-hmm. Every once in a while, someone would mention that they had put bolts into the rock. And and I kind of like would wince reading that somewhere because mm-hmm. it's almost like our dirty little secret that I don't mm-hmm. necessarily want everyone out there in the normal world to know. Yeah. Because it really is kind of a thing that I'm like, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. But then again, I from sort of a conceptual level, it's... Well, it's kind of a big deal. Well, it, it, it's more of an issue philosophically right. than it is in terms of actual impacts. I mean, sure. you could make the argument that if a bolt allows passage mm-hmm. through a certain place, then there'll be people there and there wouldn't have been people there otherwise. But in terms of the actual, but I think most people get hung up on like, wait a second, you, you, you put a hole in the rock yeah. and you put some right. stuff in there and then you left it. And there's some language in the, in the Wilderness Act that some people have argued that, you know, would be against that. But, you know, our argument has been that you know, climbing predates the Wilderness Act. It's a mm-hmm. legitimate use. And, um, you know, an interesting example. So let's just bring this in, into the real world. Um, one of the issues we're working on right now is North Cascades National Park. It's a, it's a park in Washington State. Um, it's an excellent park. It's a little bit, it's not one of the ones that when people think of iconic parts in the United States, it's probably not the first one they think of. Beautiful, really rugged wilderness. And the park service there really prides themselves on managing it 
is a wild place. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not like Yosemite wilderness where you're three pitches up, you're listening to the Green Dragon go by and, you know, whatever. So there, there's a, a peak there called Forbidden Peak. It's really popular. And there's the, the main route on it is this gully uh, that collects, you know, climbers and also rock that falls down. And, and um, some guides put in a descent route next to the gully. And, you know, the park oh, service right. at the time argued that they're, oh, they're, you're kind of lazy, you know, you're just making, you're just making your job easier. And um, the park service went in and removed those bolts. And the, the, the rappel line that they enabled, I mean, I have not been there. There's slings all over the place. I mean, you know, a climber can probably descend a lot of different ways using slings or found slings. Um, but the, the established route with the bolts was up and out of the gully, right? There was a fatality subsequent to that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we haven't made any claims about whether or not that fatality had anything to do with the bolt removal. Um, but it, it didn't look good. The, the, pr- predictably, the family of the climber wasn't happy that the bolts had been removed. And it was a it was a tough situation for the Park Service. And, um, you know, I empathize with with what they're trying to do. They're trying to keep a park wild. Mm-hmm. They see, I mean, I think it's a really natural thing to look around the world and say, there's all this encroachment. There are all these groups that want special interests. They just want a little piece of the pie. And everybody's just like, death by a thousand cuts. Before right. you know it, our wilderness area will be gone. And so, and I appreciate that perspective. And... I think Forbidden Peak is an interesting example of where bolts are completely appropriate in my mind. And we, we've done a number of things, including send up an assessment team of people who, um, from a broad range of backgrounds, including the Park Service, to kind of take a look at it. And what we found is, I mean, this is this is my personal belief, and we'll, we'll be issuing a report on, on this at some time, a formal one, but that on Forbidden Peak, there's there's three really good reasons why there should be some bolts allowed there. Number one. It keeps, you know, part of the wilderness experience is you're not supposed to encounter a whole lot of people. You're not supposed right. to be. So when you're going up a gully or a couloir and someone's rappelling down on top of you, that is not the ideal. That is not the user experience of the Wilderness Act envisioned. Now, mm-hmm. that place is getting loved a lot. But at least if the up and down traffic were separated, we'd have a better user, user experience of wilderness. Mm-hmm. So number one. Number two. There's slings all over the place up there because people are coming down and there's not an established route. And so, and some people are really good at, you know, it's kind of chossy and some people are good at figuring out what's good and what's bad. And some people aren't, and uh, you're allowed to place pins. And so it's just kind of this junk show. And the, and the review team were like, wow, there's stuff all over the place up here. Um, so there's less junk on the mountain if you have a well-established route. And then the third thing is safety. If you've got, you know, we don't, we're not, we're not saying we need the park service or anybody else needs to protect the public from themselves. We're not trying to sanitize the Mm -hmm. climbing experience Mm -hmm. or the wilderness, but if we've got an established route that uh, stays up out of the gully where the rockfall danger is greater and is, you know, maybe there's some cairns. And so people who are like seeing cross-eyed and it's a storm can get down without leaving crap all over the mountain. Right. They're more likely to get down in one piece, which means less rescues, less, you know, potentially less, less legal issues for the park service. Anyway, so to me, there's, there's those three things are really good reasons why in that park, the limited use of fixed anchors is in everybody's interest. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to get the park service to see that. And like I said, I, I appreciate that they're in a tough spot as an advocacy organization. Our job isn't to be everybody's best friend. And I'm sure there's some things that they would prefer we didn't do. But ultimately, we're, when we're at our best, 
we're helping land managers make good decisions. We're not trying to be assholes. Right. We're not trying to be strident, you know, one-dimensional people who just want, you know, like conservation issues, uh, other users, all these things. We've got to take them in. I mean, I think in the early 90s, we were a fairly uh, kind of a little bit more of an edgy advocacy organization. That was somewhat of a testament, I think, at the times that we didn't have as much political clout as we do. And there was this feeling of threat, of threats everywhere. And so we had to be a little edgier. I think... The world's changed somewhat. I think the climbing community's changed and is changing. And, you know, even just to appeal to our own membership base, I think, I don't think people want to be part of a group that screams and yells about stuff. I think they want a, a, a wise kind of mature organization that takes the big picture look and uh, advocates for climbers and good conservation outcomes. And sure. so anyway, just to kind of wrap this up, well, that's what we're working on North Cascades. And we don't want there to be sport climbs all over the place there. But we think it's really important that in, in limited circumstances that the Park Service authorizes the use of fixed anchors. And we're fine with different parks being managed differently. You know, J-Tree, there's, there's going to be a lot more fixed anchors there. In Yosemite, there's, there's some up on El Cap. If, if North Cascades wants to manage it really strictly uh, to keep it really wild, that's okay. You know, part of, the, part of the, the identity of the Park Service, I've talked to John Jarvis, the director of the Park Service, about this. They really empower the parks to make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one of the beautiful things about the culture of the National Park Service. However, there are certain rules that come from on high, including the right. director's order that just came out a year and a half ago. They right. got to follow that rules. You know? right. And so we're trying again, we're trying to help them down that path. And so I think that is an interesting lens to look at this whole fixed anchor thing. And when you get beyond the, the philosophical, wait a second. There's a hole in the rock. Right. And you put some in there. No, let's just take a step back. Right. Let's, uh, that's the philosophical and, and, the, and, the, the, and the, the microcosm of truth there. But let's, let's just take a look at the broader picture here. I think there's a very good argument to be made for the use of, as we call them, fixed anchors. And that's not only bolts, but really when it, when it comes down to it, it's the bolts that are controversial. Sure. Yeah. It, I mean, that's the weird thing. It's like a, <clears throat> pounding a piton in and out of a hole and destroying whatever that's never seen as bad as this bolt that's going to go in once and be there back in the nineties. Even people there, there would be these alerts from the access fund and like, you know, this park's going to ban bolting and it's unprecedented. And if, and if they do it, then we're on this slippery slope. And I'd always raise my hand and be just like, well, Canyonlands did this a long time ago. Like, when are we going to deal with Canyonlands? Like, when can we start putting anchors in there? And, and you know, there was one guy, and, and it's long been told, mm -hmm. it was his sort of hobgoblin. And from what I understand, it was like this visual impact idea. And that's what I would always say. It's like, I'll give a tourist... I'll give a tourist $1,000 if they can go find me an anchor in Canyonlands. Like, <laughs> right, if you can right. point out an anchor to me, right, I'll, right. I'll write you a check that minute, you know, because they're in the middle of nowhere and up yeah. on these things. But they, they banned fixed anchors years and years ago. I, I believe they still are Yeah, I don't. Canyonlands. I Get on that, Brady, is what I'm uh, saying. Okay, get on yeah. that. Yeah, I'm not going to open my mouth on that one. <laughs> um, so, so that's – anyway, so we kind of got off yeah. on that, that tangent. But that's um, – you know, so policy – Work is one of the things we do, uh, federal and increasingly state and local issues. Um, we buy, we got in the business of buying climate areas. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because that seems again to be sort of a trend that I've noticed since I've been paying attention mm -hmm. what the Access mm -hmm. Fund's been doing for a long time. But yeah, this idea of raising up the money and, and taking uh, and buying these lands from basically from private owners that are are have closed them out of liability concern generally, yeah, or, you know, or what's it, the... it depends. So we've got this. This spreadsheet with like 50 areas that were, or more, even more, that we are 
watching and we're just waiting for the right moment. You know, the way, the way land acquisitions work is you've, you've got to be somewhat opportunistic. I mean, it could be somebody who had their land open for a while and they closed it for liability reasons. Sometimes landowners will say it's liability reasons and sometimes, you know, they're just kind of tired of dealing with climbers or it could be something. It could be that a landowner didn't know there was climbing happening on their land right. and then they figured it out. Or commonly, it's like their, their uh, financial situation changes. Sure. So we, we're kind of keeping our eye on a number of these places. And what we realized about, well, the board did before they hired me was that if you don't have the expertise and the capital ready, you're caught flat footed. Right. All of a sudden, like, um, you know, all of a sudden the crag comes up for sale, like Laurel Knob, Carolina Climbers Coalition. I mean, we gave them, you know, t- 20 grand for that. That was a small organization that bought a quarter of a million dollar climbing area. Acts is fun. We're, one of the other things we need to do is is do things that make local activists more effective. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, how could we make that easier in the future? Good on you, Carolina Climbers Coalition. You did that largely on your own. How can we make that easier? We'll, we'll raise a bunch of money. We raised over a million bucks we have in the bank right now to issue zero to two percent uh, loans, super super uh, cheap loans um, to local climbing organizations or even ourselves. And we'll have an acquisitions expert on on staff. And so when these places come up for sale, we can rush in, do an assessment, figure out what's the long-term strategy. It, we say we buy climbing areas, but a lot of times it's like super complicated. We might get a conservation easement. We might buy a purchase option. We might donate it to a county with a reversionary deed so that if they ever close climbing, it comes back to us. I mean, there's all these tools. So we've got oh, a number. Cool. Yeah. There's all these tools we use, and we don't really talk about them explicitly because it's a total snoozer. Right. But we've got <laughs> we've got some attorneys, and Joe Samatero is our, our conservation expert who know these tools. And so we come in right. and assess things. We'll buy the climbing area, or we'll help a local organization buy it. And then that... And then we have like two or three years to pay ourselves back. And so we raise the money, put it back in the revolving loan fund, and then we do it again. So it's not a sinking fund. It's just effectively we're we're kind of the, a bank and also a realtor at the same time. Right. It seems kind of obvious now. Like, oh, yeah, just buy it. And then we don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah. As long as you guys continue to exist. I mean, how, right. how does that sort of work? Our continued existence. Well, not well. Yeah, you gotta get. <laughs> well, I mean, we gotta join up. Yeah, but. and I mean, every year at the end of the year, we, we've been we've been in the black every year that I've been executive director, which mm-hmm. I'm I'm proud of. But it's it's a nail biter every year. I mean, 24 percent of our revenue comes in December. That's when people tend to give at tax season, and so we don't know what happened to our fiscal year. I mean, we've got you know we got a, a one and a half million dollar annual budget, so you know 25 percent of that ish comes in in December. And it, we we it, we always think it well. We think oh, we did a good job this year. People still give us money, right? But ultimately, it's everybody. You know, it, it comes down like I said, a lot of individuals making decisions, and so we often don't know how we did until second week of January. And so, are you guys at the mercy of the economy in the sense of people giving more or less? Yeah, depending somewhat on that. Somewhat. I mean, we battened down in two thousand eight. I was a pretty new ED, but we could see it coming. We battened down the hatches. We did across. We did our own little sequestration. We did across the board fifteen percent cut. Mm-hmm. Um, specific programs as opposed to completely across the board, but and we we we, we had to manage, um, and you know we do have some assets and they're uh, they're invested very conservatively. I mean, it, you know, when you take a look at like so we, we're sitting on some money. When are we going to use it? We're going to either use it when times are bad and people want to sell their land, or times are bad and we need to dip into it. Right. So and so it's and then we we it's not invested such that when the market goes up we 
gain a lot of mm-hmm. money. We, we, we take a look at when the market goes up, people give us more donations. Sure. When the market's down, that stuff needs to be solid. Right, right. You know? yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good philosophy. Yeah. yeah. It's got to be there. It's got to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When everybody else is hurting, we can't afford to be down thirty percent. Right. We got to be solid because that's when the properties are going to come up for sale. So I have a question. And I don't know if you actually are the guy in the organization to address this, but liability concerns. I mentioned that with with yeah. um, with landowners and whatnot. So I've heard both things. Is there? I mean, is there a reality to like going in, even let's say trespassing on someone's land and getting hurt and then suing them? I mean, I guess you can sue anybody you could, for you anything. You could do that, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, there's not much, if any, precedent Right, I guess that's what the that, question I'm asking, yeah. But there's a lot of people who are really concerned about it. I mean, Hawaii, uh, the state, this is, just philosophically, this really bugs me. Like, I can understand a private landowner saying, you know what, like, I love you guys, but, you know, I'm concerned about these liability issues. Sure. And I, I well, lose the whole thing, but before when, you when get is, to the yeah. Hawaii thing, but I mean, I've always said like, it, it's, it makes sense because what does the private landowner get out of it? Nothing. His land gets, at least, even if you're careful, his land gets yeah. trashed, trails go in, the base of the cliff gets hammered. You know, even if that liability concern isn't necessarily totally a hundred percent real, other than just being a nice person, there's really no reason to let someone climb on your land unless you're a bro or you're like just That's altruistic. True. So That's true. Do you know what I mean? Like no, I totally there, know there's what you mean. no so plus we, side we, to yeah, it. Yeah. So, we, so what I was saying about the state is like there's state, there's state entities who are worried about these issues, which sure. is a whole nother ball of wax. But let's keep to your point. We, our newest program is a land landowner uh, support. So we've, we've got uh, six programs, and that is where – it's stuff that we've been doing for a long time, but we kind of repackaged it into one program so that when a landowner does have that question or they have, you know, they're sitting at their dinner table going, wait a second, what am I doing? <laughs> right. Because some guy throws a wobbler like a hundred yards from your window. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, like, oh, yeah so we, so, so one of the things we do is we consult with landowners like that. And sometimes we'll fundraise and get them liability insurance. Okay. You know, go talk to them and say, okay, what is the issue here? Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that, the risk is largely perceived, but if you're somebody who's not made of money, or sometimes even if you are made of money, you got more to lose. Whatever, um, right? You, you don't exactly, you, you don't yeah. want to put it all on. You don't want to put your future financial health on the line. So a bunch of people you don't know can use land. But the interesting thing <laughs> is, a lot of landowners are really proud. And the 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 great thing you learn when you're when you're doing land conservation i mean a lot of times when a, when a climbing area comes up for sale sometimes landowners initially they see money bags everywhere and so if if the appraisals at x they think they're going to get 4 or 5x and so and we have to just sometimes you just have to wait a year to just so listen sure. the appraisal come in here and um i mean we can't, we can't afford to overpay for for property can right. you imagine if we started doing that in kentucky there'd be like like climbing area speculation like people could hold places hostage sure <laughs> right? oh, absolutely yeah. and they would for sure yeah, yeah. so so anyway so the part of that process is like oh my god i'm making a bunch of money and then eventually when they realize actually the appraised value is probably about what i'm going to get they start to feel you know then that's when you really realize there's a lot of pride i mean maybe this property was in their family for a long time mm-hmm. and they see that there's people out there enjoying it and a lot of people 
you know, they, what, our activities cause people to have a deep connection to the land and people who live on the land. You get a deep connection to the land. We're just kind of built that way as people. And when a landowner who's been on a piece of property for like maybe generations or whatever sees that the land is really valuable and meaningful to other people, that makes them feel better about the transaction, about selling it. And some, some landowners just like that. They, they, they really want other people to enjoy their land. They just don't want to lose their shirt in the process or have to deal with, um, you know, the odd uh, troublemaker who throws a sure. beer bottle or whatever. Yeah, and I suppose in a way they also, if they have a pride in what the land looks like at that moment, then, I mean, it is in a certain to a certain extent – what little development's going to happen with roots is not like someone coming in and you know putting a hotel on top of the cliff or no. you know changing it into a parking lot or, or no. whatever. So in a way, I mean, it is a conservation, you know, a way to conserve your property for all time. Absolutely, or, or it is. And then when the climbing or community organizes and shows up and cleans up mm-hmm. not only their own trash but the trash that the teenagers left on the weekend or sure, whatever the sure. case may be, that's when I mean those cleanups that we do are so valuable and, and it goes beyond just the actual physical act of taking care of the land. It's the message it sends. You right. know? We're a group who not only do we care about our own activities, but we care about this place and we're going to clean it up. And, um, you know, like, so the, 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 the kind of key one there is the Yosemite facelift, mm-hmm. you know, I mean the biggest consistently, the biggest stewardship event where they're, they're pulling stuff, stuff out of the deep forest, such to the point where they have to like, at the facelift, they have to. There's these posters up about the Antiquities Act, and basically, like, hey, everybody, when garbage is 50 years old, it's actually protected. We're protected, right? So that old Coke bottle. Leave yeah, it yeah. If yeah, it's yeah. 49 years old, right. it's cool. If it's right. 51, right. don't touch it. And yeah, so anyway, it's like, it's like when a petroglyph or a, when graffiti becomes a petroglyph, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, the federal government's determined 50 years. Right. That's the answer to that. But anyway, you know, but it, that sends a really strong message to Yosemite National Park that the climbers show mm-hmm. up in droves. It's not like they're just showing up to right. fix their own trails and brush chalk off. Well, and imagine too if, if, if like the government went to some high line specialist, you know, company to let's say clean the you know El Cap Spire off or whatever. Like how much money it would cost them to send? Oh like, yeah, <laughs> it'd be oh, yeah. like in the tens, if not yeah. hundreds and then of thousands. What, what of would dollars. OSHA have to say yeah, about exactly. that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so. who can even? Uh, yeah, and then and they're they're. And it's like they the, got those long, like those got those long rakes to get all the poop out of the cracks. Yeah. Heinous work, heinous yeah. work. Climbers do it for free. Well, you know, <laughs> I've seen it go down in, in rifle in Colorado. Yeah, rifle, um, we, we've gotten there. The free rifle. <laughs> Does it count if you say it? I don't know. But like Canyon of the Gunnison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that we do the cleanup every year, and and the the relationship with the city is so good about that whole thing. But but the fact is, is that since climbers are these people who are there all the time, like when we do the cleanup in Rifle, which is a really small area, nothing compared to Yosemite, and, and there's not as many non-climber users. But the the joke is, is that most of us, you can't find anything to clean up mm-hmm. because we've cleaned it all up yeah, all year. You know, and, and yeah, we go into the picnic areas and that's where we find all the crap from all the other mm-hmm. people. But other than like bits of tape, and, you know, uh, cigarette butts, climbers still drop those for some reason. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's we're really, I think, a solid user group in that sense. We are. I mean, it, we can't we can't fool ourselves into thinking we're perfect. Right. And, and, and you know, one of the I, I did a TEDx talk a few years ago about how climbers are going to save the conservation movement. I, I mean, there's it's true that the, the traditional conservation groups in the United States, their membership 
is in decline or getting older. And, you know, my belief is that young people who engage in sports like climbing or mountain biking, backcountry skiing, boating, you develop these connections to the land. And especially when you show up and do a cleanup, like at rifle, you start to realize like, wait a second, you know, my, my actions here have an impact and I need to give back. And I really think that's going to play a crucial role in the future of the conservation movement. You know, this next generation, they're going to care about these places if they get to recreate there. So, you know, I think there's a greater meaning to our activities, you know, for a number of reasons. One of which is that we just get these deep connections mm-hmm. to the land. You know, and so one of the things that we're doing to, to support cleanups like the, the rifle clamp you talked about is um, we've got this partnership with Jeep Chrysler Corporation. Um, we've got two Jeeps and one of them is on the road 10 months out of the year with a professional trail building team. We go around. We don't... We, we don't charge for it all the time. I mean, we, basically, we, we show up two pro trail builders and um, and do trail projects and train locals, trying to reset the bar on what does it look like. I mean, these are people who can quarry rocks, move 500-pound boulders, cut them into bits, turn them into stone staircases. Mike and Amanda are awesome. And um, they travel around and they show land managers what is it, you know, because a climbing trail is fundamentally different than a mountain biking trail, than a hiking trail. And so this is, again, one of the ways they're like, well, how can we help local groups to like kind of supercharge their efforts? Having these expert team going around and making sure that these cleanups go beyond that and we can actually take a really deep look at the area and, okay, what are the needs? What's going to happen when this place gets more popular? We need better trails. We need a stone staircase here. Um, we need a parking area here. We need a staging area here. So we go in and we consult. We train the locals. We train land managers oftentimes. And then we actually execute projects. And so they're... They're just going on the road. They're, they're, they're here at the show right now, and they're going to be going, uh, Mike and Amanda, out for their second year starting right after the show. That's a pretty sweet job. It's a lifestyle. <laughs> it's not a get-rich-quick scheme, but they came back for a second year. Right. And, um, it is. It's also challenging. They're married, and um, think about it. You know, Being in uh, a Jeep 10 months right. together, right. getting lost. There's, there's got to be low moments. You know there yeah, is. Yeah. There, you know there is. <laughs> they're, but they're great. They're hanging in there. So that's a program that's a few years old. It's been going really well. All right. So, well, the last thing, we're, we're about out of time, Brady, but um, the last thing I want to talk about, because this was sort of something that we had talked about beforehand, um, wanting to bring up on the show, but it's this thing with Black Diamond, my other sponsor, The Rock Project. And I did a little blurb on the show. I make up, you know, I make up these commercials just out of the blue. They're funny. Thanks. I, yeah. I do my best. You might, you might be a level side business there. <laughs> I do my man. best. But originally I was supposed to like run them by, I think, uh, somebody at Black Diamond. But um, that just fell by the wayside because no one would return my email. So I just started making them up. But I, I talked about the pact. I think the the point I make, made on that commercial was actually really legitimate is that you know, I looked at the pack. There's several things on there, and you can explain it to us in a little in a minute. But you know, the truth is, is I'd broken a bunch of them over the years. Yeah. And so, you know, I said this thing about, well, how do you even know if you're the asshole? Because when when there is somebody at a cliff that's making everyone uncomfortable with their actions, they obviously don't know that. Even yeah. though we're all standing around yeah. going, like, dude, why did you put your tent there? And yeah. you know, sort of things like yeah, that. What does so, it feel like to be an asshole? The same as not being an asshole to you. <laughs> That's it. That's the philosophy right there. So anyway, let's talk about that real quick. The rock project. Well, Well, so rock project. uh, So the, the mission of this is to inspire climbers to embrace responsible outdoor behaviors, uh, to conserve the climbing environment really 
behaviors and habits like and so why why now why this and um it isn't only for gym climbers i mean i think that one of the things that we got to be really careful about is is throwing gym climbers under the bus i mean i'm a gym climber i climb the gym more often than i climb outside just because of my my life and whatnot but gym uh gyms there's this gym explosion it's like almost like the microbrewery phenomenon you know people are i've had people say that when we build a gym we build the demand at the same time and after about two years you you so you don't you don't even have to build it where the climbers are anymore you just build it and the demand right. spools up after two years so and there's there's gyms going up all over the place and there's gonna be more and more climbers coming into the sport and that's great for us in a lot of ways right um you know, we're going to more mainstream, more influence, maybe more resources, but also more impacts, more people that want to go out. And not everybody that climbs in the gym is going to want to go outside, but some are, you know. And so the question is, well, what are they, how are they queuing off of what's appropriate to do outside and not? You know, if they aren't, if they don't have an outdoor background, I mean, I started as, a, as camping and with my dad and all the stuff. And I'm not saying I didn't throw hatchets at trees and do bad stuff myself, but, you know, I, I kind of, I, I kind of learned you know how to be outside mm-hmm. and if you if you're in the gym maybe you did some of that maybe you're a boy scout or girl scout or whatever but you're queuing off of like i want to send the gnar like i need to climb v12 or whatever and um maybe you kind of didn't think about all the other stuff that comes with it giving mm-hmm. back what do you do with, with human waste and so part of this program is like trying to define what does it mean to be a climber part of being right. a climber is being yeah okay if you want to be rad great if you don't want to be rad you want to you know climb lower grades that's great too but to be a climber outside means to be aware of your surroundings aware of be, be good to land managers and try to reduce your impacts and so we're going to do six epicenter events all around the country you can learn more about it on our website um these are events where we're going to get we're going to be uh, basing these in climbing gyms getting some pro climbers in to talk about these issues throw a party and um yeah try to educate locals on you know what does it mean to be a responsible climber mm-hmm. and so and black diamond saw the need for this and they stepped up in a big way and made this whole program possible which has been great and um, it's a good partnership it's it's we're early in on it but we think that we need to take a leadership role and some control over what it means to be an outdoor climber and also get pro climbers to help us out so maybe they're putting stuff in their their videos just even like a little tiny b-roll of mm-hmm. them doing something good maybe right. not maybe not responsibly taking a dump but other things timmy timmy o'neill had that amazing video years ago he did he did yeah yeah <laughs> that was our most popular video until chris sharma did one for us and then that was became the most right, popular right one. well yeah well i think it's interesting because we we've talked about this on the show before um and there's two things that are happening one is this gym climber thing and you know that's my back in the day thing i talk about how there weren't gyms yeah and there's and there's always been gyms and we use them for all sorts of things but there's two things that are happening not only are gyms happening but and this is connected but we're also seeing this you know this surge in popularity and who knows what's going to happen uh, you know, we don't know Don wall. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, seeing a, mo- a, a television show about Wolfgang. Oh yeah. And that changed, was the thing. Totally true. So I mean, yeah. millions upon exactly. millions right. of, of nine-year-old kids, boys and girls yep. have seen this Don wall thing this month. And who, you know, if we it infects know. one, one hundredth of them, we've got a whole generation of climbers out of that. And that's no joke. Like that's because I had similar experiences of seeing one yeah. picture, one place. And so many people come on the show that say that I saw this one book this one time and I was hooked. So we've got this, this problem that like, you know, this 
over loving of the cliffs to a certain extent. Yeah. And again, like I looked at that list cause you have this thing called the pact. You have your, your celebrity climbers talking about just this idea of like, you know, do your best to hit these things. And like I said, the truth was, is there was a bunch that like, especially in the past when I was more of a dirt bag, I definitely broke those. Which one? Which, tell us what just, well, I mean, you know, do I always remember to remove my tick marks? Do I not camp in, uh, undesignated areas every once in a while? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, those were the two I remember that I, I definitely, well, the tick mark thing, I'm not a big tick marker, but but the camping in undesignated places, I may have done that within the last <laughs> couple of months, you know, yeah. but I, but I am at the same time aware of, well, you know, what is this that I'm about to do? Am I going to piss off this business owner and the somewhere, or am I really impacting a climbing zone? But my point is that, is that it made me think about like, even I, who, who think I know how to be this climber, this yeah. person you're talking about, you know, am, am causing problems. Or I may be causing well, and the problems. The interesting thing is back in the day when there was only a few hundred of us at a climbing area, that, uh, you know, we would visit over a few months, you know, maybe it didn't cause problems, right. you know? And I think to our generational, maybe I can speak for you, maybe I can't, but it, climbing was like this, you know, social, kind of like a renegade thing, like a way to, you know, to yeah. do something again. I, I didn't want to grow. I mean, I, I love my parents. I love a lot of my relatives. I didn't want to be like them when I grew up. I didn't sure. know what the hell I wanted to do, sure. but I didn't want to do that. And um, it was this kind of renegade thing and it is still to some point, but it's becoming more and more mainstream. You look at people who are coming into the sport, they're not renegades and there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And so on the one hand, their motivations might be different. And the other hand, if there was like, you know, if a few people camp out of bounds or cut switchbacks, or whatever, it's no big deal. When all of a sudden everybody's doing that and there's thousands of people visiting these places, you've got a major problem. Sure. And so, I mean, I think a lot of, sometimes I, I talk to climbers who've been around for a long time. You know, a great example of this is Waco tanks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the, in the 90s, things changed there drastically. You know, you used to be able to go wherever you wanted and, um, and then they, they closed it down and there's something called the public use plan which incidentally is, is up for review again. We're working on that. But, um, and now you can go to North, North Mountain for part of the, you know, up, up to a certain quota, and then you have to get guides. And people who, like, really grew up in the heyday, when you could g- bring your ghetto blaster, I remember, bring your ghetto blaster, just walk wherever you wanted. 40, you just dated yourself 40, calling 40, it a ghetto I know, blaster. That's okay. I'm, I'm comfortable <laughs> with the fact that I'm a 42-year-old guy. It's okay. Um, you go to the 45-degree wall, whatever. You can do all this stuff. Yeah. When they go back there, it's kind of a nightmare to them. Right. Cause it sure. used to have all these memories of like freedom and doing whatever the hell I want. And some of the climbers nowadays, like the ones that live down there and have really committed to it as a lifestyle, they may not want to talk about it publicly, but a lot of them have said, you know what? It's better. Right. It's better now. It was an unsustainable. There were trails everywhere with places getting trashed. And yeah, I don't love everything about the way things are right now, but it was on an unsustainable path. And I'm not saying on the record that the public use plan of Waco tanks is perfect. I'm not right. saying that I am saying it's up for review and we're working on that with a lot of partners. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is that in the old days when there was just a handful of us, we could do a lot of things and there was extreme freedom. And and that will be true probably in remote areas and maybe in different parts of the country. But front you know, front country places that are popular, 
we gotta we we kind of have to grow up as a community, and the young people are way more willing to do that right. than the old. And that's part of the reason why I don't want to throw gym climbers and young climbers under the bus here. No, they're they're you know? actually I mean, gonna be <laughs> some of the old yeah. like the old you know the, the stodge masters. The is, is, can, they're the ones that need the rock project the most, and they're probably not going to show right. up at the gym, right? So like it's really important not yeah. to vilify the younger generation. No, I, I I'm happy to vilify the old crusty people. <laughs> no, because and I haven't mentioned Indian Creek yet, but here we go. I mean, that's been my example. I've grown up as a climber there. You know, 1991 was the first time I climbed there. Could still camp at Donnelly Canyon, you know, right in between the cliffs because there was nobody there. It was awesome. That got closed and we got pushed out off, you know, there was a place to camp right off of Bridger Jack where the the Beat Basin Turn is. If anybody notices, there's a gate just a little bit past the Mm -hmm. toilet on the left. That used to be a camping area. That got closed. Then the, the... area right up the Bridger Jack Road was the area for the longest time on the mm-hmm. Slick Rock. That got closed. So I watched it all go down, and I'm a part of it with the Friends of Indian Creek. Okay, great. And and the thing is, it's just like everybody wants to think, and this is my big thing, and we have to wrap this up, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about this anyway cause, and put your input into it. But the problem I see with it all is everybody thinks it's the other people that need to shore yeah. their shit up, and it's yeah. like... In my example is always the crowd. The crowd is everybody else. You're never part of the crowd. When you show up at the cliff and you say, it's crowded here, you don't realize that you and your friends just added mm-hmm. to that. You know. And my, my ongoing thing is like, you don't like the crowds? Go home. Reduce the crowd by one. It's the only thing you can do at this point. It's right. like 10 o'clock in the morning at Supercrack Buttress. Get in your car and leave. You you proactively reduce the crowd by one. Congratulations, you're okay. you're you're a you know you're a fighter for yeah. for the future. But that's the problem is they want you know okay I don't I've always shit in the ground here. You know when we first started putting toilets in, which has been my joke with friends of Indian Creek and the Access Fund's been a huge the help with that. Fund. Yeah, it's like that's what we do. <laughs> yeah, We're the friends of shitting at Indian yeah. Creek because that's been like our mission for like yeah. five or six years. Yeah. You know, people complained like there's a toilet here now. And it's just like, are you freaking kidding me? Oh, Do you no. know how hard it was to get this toilet in here? Yeah, and, 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 right? and it's like we're camped yeah. in a Riparian zone. The, the creek is right there. And in fact, everybody walked down to the creek because that's where the bushes were that would hide you. And so, right. I mean, right. <laughs> and that's the thing is everybody thinks it's like two things. They think it's the other people and I'm, you know, not going to be the one. If they shore their shit up, that's fine. Yeah. And then, you know, oh, it's just a few of us. But my big examples, too, is when we when we started putting those portalettes, the first three down at mm-hmm. the Creek Pasture, there was three portalettes. And they were having to, to empty those things weekly. And even before the week was over, you'd have to go in with a stick and, like, push the shit pile down. So to have it right there. Grim. And you'd be like, okay, grim. two years ago, this all used to go in the ground yeah. right next to that creek every week right. and nobody kind of realizes there's yeah. this aggregation of the problem like you said if a hundred people do that switch back then we have a mm-hmm. problem mm-hmm. so I think those are I mean I don't know if this is anywhere in, in the rock project but that's the big switch I think people need to do in their minds in yeah. a good way and a bad way in a good way they can also say they're 35 bucks that they give you guys that's the lowest one right mm-hmm. doesn't seem like much but again aggregate it's a lot. Tens of thousands it of comes people up do to it. A million bucks. Yeah. A year, so, yeah. no, that's I can totally relate to that. I mean, for me, it's like Black Velvet Canyon, Red Rocks. Mm-hmm. We used to camp oh, right yeah. in there. Sure. You yeah. know what? It was awesome, and I I love that. And uh, waking right up there and going and doing whatever you were going to do up there and come back to camp, 
and that time isn't is gone now mm-hmm. and so it's i think it's understandable to mourn that but to get angry i mean we just have to be open to the fact that the world is changing our community is changing and yeah, change is hard, and it just kind of pisses people off when a place was theirs once. They felt like it was theirs. Of course, it wasn't. And now there's all these other people. That's the way things are going. Right. And if you want that experience, you're going to have to go get it somewhere else. You know, go hike way the hell in someplace. Yeah. Or go to another country. Or uh, It's tough, and I, and I appreciate it. But we've got to be responsible and open to the fact that things are changing. And that means that we have to... Uh, manage yourselves. You know, one one interesting concept here is like self-regulation for a lot of times for climbers is like the, we don't need to be regulated. We can regulate ourselves. But what a lot of people think that means is anarchy, doing whatever I want. Right. It doesn't mean doing whatever you want. It means doing stuff, preventing yourself from doing stuff you want and doing things you don't want to do. Every once in a while, which is also called being an adult, <laughs> yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, like, and a lot of climbers are adults, and now we're now we're now we're riffing off each other. Uh, yeah, these climbers, man. You guys God, suck. Yeah, God, climbers, especially old ones. Yeah, but um, like us. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but change is hard, and we decided that you know one of the things we've done done for a long time is prepare the areas for the climbers. You know, building trails, building mm-hmm, toilets. Mm-hmm doing the infrastructure, dealing with land managers, the policies, we've, we've decided we needed to start preparing the climbers for the places. Right. And that's not just young people, it's everybody. That's what we're trying to do at The Rock Project. And so people want to learn more about it or figure out where these epicenter events are going to be happening this year, uh, they can go to accessfund.org and they can support the Access Fund. Awesome. Well, look, everybody, if you're not scraping up 35 bucks at the minimum to give to these guys. If you give them 50, they'll give you a t-shirt, right? A nice t-shirt. Yeah, it's actually a really nice t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I just got mine. Uh, you got to do it. It's part of the sport now. We have to have these guys out there advocating for us. And uh, they're passionate people. Brady is a climber and still a passionate climber. And, you know, we were joking. They're not just a bunch of guys in, in suits making no. decisions in a boardroom somewhere. Today so. we're guys in triple... Layer Gore-Tex corduroy. <laughs> right on. All right, thanks, Brady. Thanks, thanks for Chris. sitting down. Thank and um, glad to have you on the show. Glad to have you as a fan as well. My pleasure. See ya. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening next installment of the enormous castle will be coming to you from spain i leave in a week to go to spain for a month you're like god damn it Calus! when do you want our money well that's kind of true but also i paint houses so i don't have to do much in the winter it's cold out can't paint outside it's all part of my lifestyle choices have led me to be able to go to spain for a month thank you very much so i got a lot of sport climbing ahead of me a lot of not checking ahead of me can't trust those Spaniards. Seriously. One hand belaying, one hand smoking a cigarette, one hand tying their knot. Just doesn't work. That's three hands. So hopefully you guys will too. Get out there, have some fun, be safe, and don't forget to check your knots. Well, to tell you the truth, I was a little hesitant at first, Mr. Mugatu. I mean, you've never hired me before, and I've been around for, for ages and ages. You've been around for a long, long time. I never wanted anything from you. And now you're retired. I can't have you. And it's funny how it switches like that. 
But now the forbidden fruit must be tasted.